Hello, and welcome to Opika's Innovation in Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika. I've worked as part of a statewide children's system of care for almost 20 years, and it was during my tenure that I learned that so much more innovation is necessary to bring data to life, especially assessments back to the point of care. And here at Opeka, we have developed a person-centered intelligence solutions approach where this could all be done in real time and strengthening collaborations, no matter if there's one system or multiple systems connected to that individual child, youth, emerging adult, adult and family. Today's show will be on shifting from disparities to prosperities, flipping the model from labeling risks to stacking successes toward health for all. And this session is part of Opika's Pandemic X series to bring to light innovative ways in how technology can help to narrow uh, health inequities and to support um, whole person care and impact social determinants of health. According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, health equity is when everyone has the opportunity to be as healthy as possible. Exploring ways to provide systems reform can actively support every person, and we need to do this now. The pandemic has brought to light areas where we really did not have full health equity. And if we looked across the country, it was for a specific population or groups of people. We want them to have an opportunity to attain their full health potential. If we continue with the status quo, this will keep the quote unquote disadvantaged or disenfranchised groups of people exactly where they are. We want everyone to have and reach their potential, just like Maslow's hierarchy of needs being the best of they possibly can be. And we want to prevent the labeling. The labeling happens so too often, and the bar is set so low that we do risk management. We're just keeping people basically out of the hospital or one step from a, uh, uh, a crisis. We instead want to shift that and focus on success. Here at Opeka and with the individuals that we have part of our panelists, um, as panelists, we will see firsthand that that shift can be made quite easily. And a systemic shift is absolutely necessary uh, for health uh, uh, and to reduce the impact of historic inequities, including differences in length of life, quality of life, rates of disease, disabilities, and death uh, related to severity of disease and access, access to treatment and care. Our special guest is Dr. Lonnie Snowden. He's a professor of health policy at University of California, Berkeley, and health disparities researcher. He has received numerous awards. And as a psychologist, he's committed to breaking down social and political barriers. Dr. Snowden's calm composure and steadfastness has propelled uh, us all to uh, make a difference and play our part in this role. And he has single-handedly uh, influenced a path to increase access, increase access to uh, quality mental health, physical health care, especially for those individuals with um, racial and ethnic communities, which in the past have been underserved populations. So thank you again for joining us. 
Hello and welcome. My name is Ken McGill and we'd like to welcome you to Opika's uh, Mass Challenge Pandemic X webinar series. This is the third in a series uh, shifting from disparities to prosperities, flipping the model from labeling risks to stacking successes towards health for all. And we have an amazing group of, of people with us today. And it's a reminder that part of the series that we're offering is to remind um, people that we wanna look at the whole person. We wanna make sure that we're focusing in on all the aspects of that person's life so we can support true health equity and work towards impacting the social determinants of health. And during this time, we brought together uh, amazing thought leaders and a special guest and we'll actually be able to provide uh, solutions. They will provide solutions uh, in support of overall health and well-being for everyone. And it is an absolute honor and privilege to have the panelists today. Arisha uh, Grishio, founder and CEO of Upinos. Dr. Kate Cordell, co-founder and CEO at Opica. And Cynthia Orofo, co-founder at Culture Care Collective. Now, if we can, I'll start with Arisha, if you would like to introduce yourself and your company, that would be awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on this panel. I'm so excited about the opportunity to speak to everybody today. My name is Arsha Gracio, and I am the founder of Upnus. We are a startup company based out of London in the UK. Um, our mission and vision is to be able to bring uh, equitable access to self-management applications for people who suffer from respiratory conditions like asthma, COPD, and now of course we have COVID to also reckon with and other uh, diseases that may impact the pulmonary system or the lungs. And the reason why we've done this is because chronic diseases are massive. It's a big problem for everybody. And by being able to provide an application that offers objective measurements like lung function testing, symptom management on a smartphone, which all of us have access to, we believe that we will be able to address some of the health health inequities and access problems that we have um, today amongst many populations. Thanks. And hi, I'm uh, Dr. Kate Cordell, co-founder and CEO of Opica. Um, at Opica, we unify uh, information across that community network of care providers. We feel that the community network of care providers are some of our most important providers that are in community with the folks that are being served in behavioral health, mental health, and other social uh, types of care services. And they are essential to our network of service systems. Oftentimes they are an afterthought um, because a lot of the technology and solutions are aimed at large peers and providers. Um, but what is essential about our network of care are those community-based organizations. So what we do is we provide technology to unify those organizations with those big providers so that we can create a more unified system of care and so that we can exchange information that is culturally sensitive and uh includes goes beyond what a health information exchange might be goes beyond claims data goes beyond medical data and includes cultural data um, behavioral data uh, social data and other information that would help provide uh, uniform care to folks who are most in need thank you 
Hello, everyone. My name is Cynthia Rofo. I am the co-founder and CEO of Culture Care Collective. Culture Care Collective, we're based out of Boston. We're a hybrid health support program that includes a face-to-face -face support as well as an interactive digital support app where community health workers are integrated into clinical-based care teams to provide culturally supportive and culturally sensitive care to marginalized groups at low cost. Uh, we essentially have um, recognized the importance of community health workers and community clinical linkages in our care model and tried to embody that in the hospital-based settings that are very in need of having culturally sensitive care delivered holistically to their patients that they serve. So by contracting community health workers and supervisory personnel, as well as licensing our software to healthcare organizations, the program strives to improve the health and social capital of marginalized communities and reduce health disparities overall. Bit of background about myself, I am a nurse and I have worked in both the public health sector as well as the ICU during COVID um, and as a critical care nurse. Um, so Culture Care Collective is really bred from a passion area between the two worlds of my nursing and um, seeks to really improve those um, socially supportive care at low cost. Thank you. Well, thank you all. And what I found is the, the COVID, um, the worldwide pandemic, brought together two things. One, there, there's no denying there have been challenges uh, and disparities, uh, and we need to recognize that. No one can go without you know, um, unrecognizing that. Uh, and if they do, that's not something that should be accepted. And the other is people have stepped up like this group where they have innovations, they have solutions, and uh, they threw away the box the way we used to do things because this is how we've always done it. So thank you and Dr. Lonnie Snowden is our special guest today. Uh, Dr. Snowden is a professor of health policy and management at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. He has been a leader in research and policy development, especially in support of healthcare access, quality, and equity for racial and ethnic communities and the underserved populations. Dr. Snowden has served on numerous review and advisory committees. Here's some of them in terms of the National Institute Institutes of Mental Health and Drug Abuse, the Surgeon General's Report on Mental Health, co-scientific editor of the supplement Mental Health, Culture, Race, and Ethnicity, a supplemental, a supplement rather to Mental Health, a report of the Surgeon General. Dr. Snowden has received numerous awards, including the 2021 Presidential Citation, Surgeon General's Exemplary Service Award, and the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Contributions to Research and Public Policy and the Berkeley Citation. Uh, Dr. Snowden is an integral member of the APA uh, COVID-19's workgroup and co-authored an article reviewing existing literature on African-American white disparities connected to COVID-19. Dr. Snowden, you're an, an amazing psychologist who's committed to breaking down social and political barriers uh, through your research, but also your activities, your, your involvement in policy and uh, planning. So it's truly an honor to introduce you. And uh, so welcome. Well, thank you very much. And let me just say what an exciting time it is and how much I appreciate being on this panel with people who I think embody the very directions that we need to go to really make inroads in overcoming some of these longstanding disparities. So I've made, I spent my career um, studying healthcare disparities, access and quality of care. And many times over those years, people would ask, well, you know, but there, there are developments here and there, but can we really nationwide make a major impact in overcoming some of these longstanding disparities? 
And I think we can, and I, th I think we have, and I think we can further overcome those disparities through, through the developments embodied by the people on this panel. So the issues, as was said, it's the very structure of the US healthcare system, the chaotic US healthcare system, that, which has some basic fundamental structural characteristics that perpetuate disparities. And what we see in the people who you'll be hearing from today are possibilities for overcoming some of those structural barriers. So one of the problems is a lack of flexibility. The, the, the idea that the longstanding embedded tradition of going into healthcare providers for scheduled appointments and receiving care, um, either through referral or through direct provision on a very, uh, ir on a very regular and structured basis interferes with the ability of some people from some populations to receive timely and effective care. The nature of their workforce participation, their jobs don't allow the flexibility to participate. And so increasing flexibility as is possible now and is being put forward is an extremely important development that I think will go a long way to overcoming some, some of the disparities we're concerned about, especially for chronic care conditions, which require uh, you know, an ongoing intervention. Um, another problem is stigma. And this is particularly true in the mental health sphere that I've spent most of my career studying, although I'm increasingly interested in general health care. But uh, I recently uh, wrote a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Mental Health Stigma about the problems that especially affect ethnic minority populations having to do with stigma. And so reframing as is being, um, is being put forward the possibility of doing that is extremely important and I think will carry us a long way toward addressing some of these disparities. In addition, um, a lot has been said over the years about engagement with ethnic minority communities and the need to do that in order to overcome disparities. And community health workers and um, uh, community health workers are a major, uh, a major vehicle for doing that and community-based organizations. And we now have people like, as are represented on the panel, who are experienced and capable and build and can help us build a capacity to really capitalize on the potential of community-based organizations and community health workers to promote real engagement with ethnic minority communities, which will go a long way to also overcoming disparities. So um, I'm optimistic and delighted to be here and uh, look forward to moving forward uh, in the next 45 minutes or so. Oh, well, again, I think the third and most important uh, that um, this discussion will is to provide hope because we can, we can do better, we should do better, and we will do better. So breaking down the inequity pillars and, and increasing the, the, the uh, items that you just mentioned, which really segues uh, perfectly into a question that could uh, really uh, start with you, Dr. Snowden, with regards to the um, Affordable Care Act, how does continuing implement, uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act increase access for all? Uh, we've heard about it, we've we've seen it, you know, talked about, and all of a sudden go into the um, to the side discussions and um, not at the forefront. Sure. So um, the Affordable Care Act really did transform the U.S. healthcare system in major ways that have, in fact. Um, undone some of the major disparities. So one, one feature is, uh, is increased insurance coverage. And, and in some ways, 
the Affordable Care Act, that was a major goal. The, in fact, the, the first and primary objective was universal coverage. Now, the Affordable Care Act was unable to provide universal coverage, but it did provide millions of people, many millions of people with coverage who previously lacked coverage. And the two pillars here are Medicaid expansion and um, uh, marketplaces and subsidies so that people could purchase private coverage on, uh, on marketplaces. And the research literature demonstrates pretty clearly that many, many people received coverage who lacked it before, and that disproportionately many of these people were members of ethnic minority populations. So there are now people, and that's true both of marketplaces and subsidies in private purchase, as well as Medicaid expansion. So now there are many more minority people than before who do not face the same cost barrier, which was a very significant problem previously. Um, they, they also benefit from the fact that there are now required services for a plan to be uh, ACA eligible. And those, uh, those include preventive care services. So um, now where there have been major disparities. And this is an opportunity again for community health workers, community-based organizations to be, to be involved. Um, another major vehicle for achieving um, healthcare equity in the Affordable Care Act is community um, is uh, federally qualified health centers. And those were expanded, they continue to be expanded and uh, provide opportunities. They bring healthcare to disproportionately many low, low income people, especially minority people. Um, they've grown, they continue to grow, and they continue to, uh, to serve many people. Um, another feature that gets overlooked, but that's extremely important, is um, the fact that now not-for-profit hospitals are required to serve their communities to maintain not-for-profit status. So they are required now to, um, um, to conduct community needs assessments for local areas and to begin to engage with and serve uh, community-defined needs for mainly, many times for preventive health care. So this creates opportunities that didn't exist before, before um, to maintain their not-for-profit status. Not-for-profit hospitals mainly provided uncompensated care, which is clearly within their wheelhouse and is a valuable thing to do. But now they have to make take other steps and to be much more outward, outward looking and outward turning than they had in the past. So um, now these are just some of the developments and ways in which the Affordable Care Act has really, I think, moved us forward. Um, it was under uh, siege um, with a number of attempts, many, many attempts to repeal and replace it. Those have probably gone by the wayside now. Um, and in fact, it is so integral that um, President Biden, it's being used to respond to crisis. So in President Biden's American Rescue Plan, there was expansion of uh, there were further attempts to get states to adopt expanded Medicare and, and, and increase subsidies for portions of the population that previously lacked subsidies. So this illustrates how um, the Affordable Care Act has become so ingrained that it's used even for, uh, you know, to respond to crises. So I think that uh, you know, moving forward, there are a lot of opportunities that it, that the American, that the Affordable Care Act has created. Now, let me let me mention something that also I think is extremely important, 
And that is, and, and it's a limitation, and it's, it's, it's a characteristic of the American healthcare system that I think really needs to be appreciated. So the American healthcare system is so fragmented that it's really difficult to generalize. It depends on what state you're in. It depends on what your health plan is. It depends on whether you're receiving public sector or private sector care. It depends on whether you have public or private financing. All of those factors and more dictate differences in the opportunities and the constraints on the, on the receipt of care. So it's hard to generalize. But having said that, and for example, um, there are now something like 12 states that still have not accepted Medicaid expansion. So, you know, anything, any advantage that comes with Medicaid expansion and that is true disproportionately, accrues disproportionately to ethnic minority populations does not apply in those states. So the fragmentation of the system, the fact that states have enormous control um, under federalism continues to dictate certain limits in what we can expect to accomplish and what we can and how far we can generalize. Nevertheless, there are important features that, um, that are established, that are laid down, that are not going away, and that um, call upon and enhance some of the developments that, we, um, that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, that for me really helped me with, it, it has such a structure to it and it has moving parts, but you also really mentioned a lot of flexibility as we continue to unroll this and the, the power to move things forward falls upon each one of us um, in wherever we live in the 50 states. So thank you. Does anyone else up, um, wanna add? Um, yeah, I, I would just say, uh, you know, Dr. Snowden that, uh, you know, it's the access, the uh, expansion of the uh, Medicaid in because of the Affordable Care Act has resulted, you know, from your research and other research um, with evidence that people have more access to care. Is that correct? Yes. Um, it, so, so there is no question that uh, more people, more minority people, disproportionately many minority people have now have coverage. Um, does that mean they're getting more care? Is there evidence? That's the question. Not nearly as much. That is that is more, that's less certain. And to the extent it's true, it's not true as much as it could be and should be. Okay. And so this is this is an opportunity. So, you know, uh destigmatizing care is important, providing a more flexible framework and instruments for delivering care more flexibly are extremely important. Um, reaching out to communities and employing community health workers and community-based organizations, their expertise and their services are important. So uh, yes, people now have the means to get care. Um, many are more than before, but not as many as could. And these are some of the ways to, um, to, increase, to increase care. Yeah, it seems it's never a one and done. It, it, you don't check a box <laughs> off. It has to be an active process, and it gives us all that responsibility. And I agree. I, I think the, these are amazing people who are doing amazing things to to make the access um, more available and and yet more effective in preventing a lot of the 
I can appreciate how, you know, Dr. Snowden sings the praises of community health workers. I mean, at Culture Care Collective, we embody, you know, their significance. The ACA itself supports engaging community for equitable care delivery, as Dr. Snowden mentioned, and promotes the integration of community health workers into clinical-based care teams um, to increase access to the holistic, comprehensive health care that a lot of minority or non-white populations in this country are really in need of. Um, but we see them also effective in different types of, um, you know, marginalized groups like uh, migrant groups, especially those who recently migrated within the last five or so years. Um, and, you know, people who have English as a second language. So it's important to know that um, community health workers are active, you know, in the streets, in the public, but then also in um, hospital based care where they can really be impactful key health mediators. That's that's wonderful. And I, I just want to add too, like in, in our experience at OPICA, we uh, serve uh, 14 community-based uh, mental health clinics or uh, foster care serving uh, community-based agencies. And uh, so far we launched a year ago. And in that discussion, you know, around the community in these discussions, when I talk about community-based uh, agencies, a lot of times I hear, what is that? Who, what, what is a community? What, what can you tell me? So when I say our, our customers right now are community-based agencies, what what it, what is that? Like there's so little knowledge in the field of what makes up the um, network of providers of organizations that provide services across our communities. Um, people think of hospitals and primary care uh, providing centers, but those are well, they're pillars of our care. Um, network, the the ones that are really getting, you know, to the people in a culturally sensitive way are our community-based organizations providing care within the community, and they're an essential part of that network. Um, so it's just, I love to have this conversation and help educate folks about the importance of community-based providers. They are um, so essential. They have the biggest hearts um, and they're all in it for the right reasons. And that's why I, I really enjoy the work that we do um, supporting community-based agencies. Well, thank you all. And going to the next question, I think we'll, we'll even uh, take it a, a step further as we discussed um, um, some of the innovations that are being presented here. The question, uh, how can virtual care delivery improve equitable access for all, I think is a great segue into the, uh, the, the conversation of how the Affordable Care Act and the ACA can, can take amazing steps. So I'll put that out there for anyone who would like to start the discussion. Maybe I can jump in. It's it's so interesting to listen to this discussion because here in the UK, we have our national health service. Um, we call it a national treasure for a reason. And um, it, it just it just feels, I, I feel so fortunate to be on the side of the pond, you know, just listening to you because I mean, everybody has access to the best quality of care and, you know, having community care and having community health workers and caseworkers is just so normal for us. So, you know, I'm I'm pleased to hear that there is a step change in America because if anything, if, if COVID has shown us how important and how vulnerable we are, irrespective of where we are. So all our assumptions, I think, have fallen to the ground. And that's also been one of the reasons why um, if we if we look at the UK where we don't have issues with 
with equity and, and health equity and access or any of that. What we do have problems with is actually logistics. It's the operational issues that we have. And with COVID, what we saw is that even though everybody has access to their doctors, everybody has insurance cover, nobody is left out or, or sidelined, that there is a big problem here. You can't actually go to the to your GP. You can't go to the hospital. You can't get care because of the, there's a pandemic on and it's it's blocking you. So there's this new level of complexity that's just been thrown into the mix um, that can actually be addressed and we've seen can be addressed through technology. And that was really the origin of Upnu. So my background is actually from Nokia and Microsoft. I come from the world of technology where doing conference calls with people across the globe is quite normal. And now it's become normalized across the board and everything that we do. Um, so being able to do things virtually is not new. And we know it's very simple and we know that it's, it's been done in so many different domains. It was just the healthcare domain that was for some reason lagging behind. And I think what we've actually seen is that we've been, necessity is the mother of invention. We've been pushed into a point where we have to be able to open ourselves up to using tools, virtual tools, be it a mobile device, be it your laptop, be anything really, and embrace them and actually draw them into our daily life and, and our management pathways and so on. With with Upnos, what we did is that we looked at a device that everybody has access to, which is a mobile device. In fact, there are actually 6.5 billion devices in the world today. And each of these devices are supercomputers. They can do many, many different things. They are chock-a-block with sensors, and every child knows how to use them. Every child knows how to swipe them. There is actually a problem, of course, with the older populations where digital inclusion is a big topic. But what we've done to address <laughs> in your normal landline, you know, phones that we can, um, if you can remember those things that we used to have lying in our home that we couldn't move around with. So, so there are different ways to be able to address this problem. We chose to go down the respiratory care, the respiratory chronic diseases path, because that's got the biggest disease footprint in the globe, more than cardiovascular, more than cancer. And the amount that we spend on respiratory diseases is also phenomenal. It goes at the billions in the US actually. In the UK, we're very close behind to that number as well. And it sometimes stems from the fact that we can't actually control the triggers. It's, it's air pollution. I mean, we can't choose the air we breathe. And it affects each of us differently based on our ethnicity, our gene pool, our age, our sex. Even though women are actually impacted more than men, it's still not considered a, a female disease per se, we're not treated differently. So I think there's all of these, these things that need to be addressed. And by giving people the means to be able to identify early symptoms of disease way before it becomes a full-blown crisis means that it also gives them a level of control. It gives, it empowers them to be able to take the steps they need to be, and, and at a time where it's not going to cause them to sell the shirts off their back like you have to do in the US in any case. So I think there's there's all of these different factors that we believe that are going to be pushed into the mainstream because of technology. And the more we empower community care workers, people, low-income communities, everybody who can actually use these technologies to become comfortable with them, to be able to skill people to use these technologies in the best possible way, I think that's when we're also addressing a huge problem with inclusion and being able to also have access to services that they wouldn't that they wouldn't normally have um, if they don't adopt these new changes paradigm shifts that are happening so that's kind of my two two pence worth 
Um, I would just add to that, I could see a future where um, community health workers have an arsenal of different tools and technologies that they can use and engage with, you know, the folks um, prior to higher levels of care being needed to help those folks empower um, their own understanding of their illnesses or their potential illnesses. And as a parent of a child with chronic uh, respiratory disease that is more severe than asthma, I really appreciate, I would have loved to have had this technology in the last um, bout of um, uh, fatigue and breathing, chronic breathing issues that uh, my child had for, you know, weeks and weeks were trying to get care and the spirometry, um, you know, was haphazard. And maybe the day we went in on the spirometry, you know, the child was a little bit better, but over the weekend, you know, the lips were blue and I was calling, you know, the doctor and I had no data to say, you know, they're asking me questions of, well, you know, what do you hear? Well, it kind of sounds raspy and he's struggling to breathe. And what do I do? You know, mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I do battle this chronically, and I, I like the idea of providing more in the hands of folks so that when we're calling, you know, and looking to see if we need higher levels of care, we have actual data points to provide on that. And, you know, not just with my own experience, but like you said, with folks who maybe are a little reticent to seek higher levels of care, it puts that in their hand to empower them to know when it's needed and, and when to seek it. Thank you, Kate. I mean, I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, there's another point that just I'm just going to say something very quick and then I'm going to hand over. Um, so you've got you must be familiar with the drug called albuterol, which is a basic asthma inhaler, right? It's contraindicated in my son's condition. But yes, I am. Thank you. Yeah. It makes him much worse. Right. Collapses so, his lungs. Thank I'm, you. I'm so sorry. But with albuterol in the UK, it costs us about 10, 10 pounds. I mean, sometimes you don't even have to pay for it, right? In the US, it will cost you about $200. Mm -hmm. And and what we're seeing is that people really, really would um, think twice about using their medication simply because it costs so much money. Um, and so you're actually missing, you know, you're not taking your, your, your medication regularly, which means that you are setting yourself up for failure. So that's why we just feel that by being able to have a tool that's actually going to show you um, that you are heading down that very slippery slope, you can you can manage that 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 slide before it actually hits that point. So I think that's kind of the reasons why we actually decided to enter the U.S. We want to be able to help in the U.S. market and make the the solution available to everybody through their mobile device. Thank you. I'm hopeful overall of, you know, how Kate mentioned that, you know, tech empowered future that community health workers can really have the access to. We're hopeful at Culture Care Collective to make that a reality with our digital health platform. I know that before I became a nurse, I um, operated on my university's mobile health van and I worked in a community health worker capacity. And I mean, the van started more than 20 years ago, delivering, you know, mobilized health care to, you know, marginalized patients in and around the Massachusetts area. And um, we have been analog for a very long time. It was just until last year, we actually went over to iPads and using like, you know, mobile technologies to start documenting care coordination, et cetera. And if you think about the, you know, the pillars of public health, it's very much on the go, very on the move, and 
in a sense, it is analog because that is what's convenient for us um, to kind of write down the patient notes as we're walking and talking with them on the streets, um, as we're coming out of the bars with them to try to get them tested, et cetera. So I know that um, a lot of other countries have really mastered that um, community health worker integrated model, mobilizing community health workers into rural areas, hard to reach areas, and using that technology to really impact that. There's so many case studies in India, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, that they really do master that model. And I know the U.S. is trying to catch up. I would say in the last five or so years, they have been making taking more strides to really engage those community health centers, community-based organizations, and you know the mobilization of community health workers and um, including them into um, hospital-based care. I know the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services a few weeks ago announced a nearly $55 million award to community health centers uh, nationally in the U.S. to increase virtual health care access and quality. And that significance is really being seen on a federal level. So we're hopeful that, you know, there's more adoption that, you know, trickles down into the individual communities that are in need of, you know, virtual care and um, community health workers as well. But it's very important to note that just bringing in technology is not enough. It has to be targeted and tailored to the individual and um, sensitive to their individual cultural beliefs, their cultural patterns, their habits, uh, for example, our te technological platform has learning and coaching modules that are consistent with the medical plan of care and mediated by the community health worker to say, you know, this is something that they would do. They are going to check their blood sugar every day or they're going to check it maybe once a week and kind of tailor it down to what the is actually feasible for the patient. So that targeting and tailoring is a definite um, major component of that virtual care delivery. I, I love this combination because you have the the technology that's being you know empowering the the community, and then you have the community health workers you know that uh, could help bring that technology to the homes of the people that need it, and then you have us at Opica helping to connect that network of providers from the community all the way up to you know the hospitals and higher level of care, so that when people do need to go for care, they're not having to tell and retell their story, and they have the data to support the care they need. So this is just a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And I have to ask this group, um, once we get healthcare, can we move to the other systems? I'm a systems trained therapist. So can we get to education and then the, all the other, because I believe they're also in need of some assistance. So if I can even get a maybe from, uh, <laughs> maybe. that was a, that was a hopeful, um, not a disparaging remark. It was really a hopeful that we'll get to all systems. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. But I, I just want to reinforce something that, that came up earlier about the national health service, which demonstrates, I think, that the things that we took, that we take in regard to disparities as inevitable, aren't inevitable. So an example like that shows that a system with certain design features um, really doesn't have some of the disparities that we, it has, it has other issues, but it doesn't have some of the disparities that we've taken for granted for so many years. And I think the developments that we're seeing and talking about today can move us, um, can really, it's realistic to think that they can uh, arrive at a point where some disparities in this country too, major longstanding disparities actually um, close. Absolutely. 
There's that hope component Ken talked about. I think that is so important. And when you mention the other countries and think about, you know, um, across the pond, which I always love to say, and and then get to the the, the, the wonderful continent of Africa and all the different places where we could we could bring you know technology and more importantly access to care um, is is so very very needed because um, part of our human existence is to to be able to live um, and live healthy and to be the best that we could possibly be because there's a time limit on how uh, long we're on this uh, this earth and and. So thank you all for giving hope today. And I hope everyone who's uh, listening and, and participating in the uh, the chat are also feeling the same hopefulness. Um, in terms of the next question, uh, how does the sentiment uh, of language, because that is really powerful, I've already been speaking about it, uh, that health workers use to affect equitable access to care. Um, and we know language has a very powerful <laughs> means to it. So how do you see the sentiment of language uh, especially the health workers use. So uh, thanks, Ken. This is this is the one of my soapbox topics. I don't know if you want to move to the, the next slide, uh, but I did submit a slide on this question because this is one of the questions I feel really strongly about. I think in our healthcare system, we still today do what's called risk stratification. Um, I think this was born out of an actuarialism approach to care. Um, who is at risk to fail? Who's at risk to die? Who's at risk to um, be in our emergency rooms? And then we label people based on that risk stratification. And I think that doing uh, approaching care in this way it embeds stigma into our operations. I think that identifying people as risk um, applies a label to those folks. Um, it's negative. I certainly don't want to be labeled as a risk of failure. Um, I think it promotes stigma. I think it, it influences the kind of language that we use as care providers when we see a patient and they have a particular negative label on them. Um, and then it, it it's not useful for uh, personalized care to identify somebody as a risk for emergency room visit. How does that help you understand how to care for them and support them in their healthcare journey? I just feel like we really need to move away from the language that we use because words are important and identify people as opportunities to support. So where can we achieve success through additional support for these uh, folks? How do we identify how to lower the risk through better care and better support? How do we apply action to the problem so that we're not labeling people as risk and then waiting for them to fail, but we're identifying what supports they need in a very personalized way, specific to their uh, demographic locate or demographic uh, culture, geographic location, um, and, and level of need at that moment. And then how do we use positive language around here is a somebody coming in for care who has um, a large opportunity for support so that we can help them be successful in their care versus a, a large risk for failure. Um, if we can, can if we can change the way we look at people and we label and we talk about people in care, then I think our language can become more compassionate and our interventions can be more personalized. Uh, and I think that this is something that we can start with, with is just changing the way we talk about um, people who have the highest level of need as um, opportunities for success. Thank you.
I think if you think of language in a not so literal sense as well, if you think about the metaphorical and like actual literal speaking of a language, I think that's where you can, you know, empower not only community health workers, but health workers in general that have those skills that have, you know, the interpersonal skills to speak a patient's metaphorical language. We need to be training folks to do that. I know that within nursing, a lot of nurses are very good at doing that already. Um, but if we can extend that to other clinical settings, other clinical practice areas, it would be very important to, you know, again, empower the patients to be able to be key health mediators in their own health um, by not labeling them, as Kay mentioned, as, you know, at risk or risk factors. Um, you know, we can identify the areas, the social determinants of health that we can mitigate in order to improve their health. Um, but it's ultimately up to us to really, you know, speak that person's language in all forms of that phrase, um, you know, as nurses, as community health workers, as an entire whole multidisciplinary care team um, to essentially put the patient first and make sure that their care is, you know, targeted and tailored to their own, you know, care um, needs, but then also their disease pathways. Yeah, I think the opening up of records to to people in care so that they have access to their own records, I'm really hoping is going to help change this, you know, so those labels that are put on care records about non-compliance and all these negative terms, I'd love to see those go away. Um, and I and I'm hoping that as people gain access to the records, that uh, those types of terms and labels will be reduced over time. Um, so that we could have a less stigmatizing environment for people to seek care. Yeah. And, and I think um, ethnic minority people in particular may be aware of and um, not appreciating some of the um, some of the negative judgments that get conveyed. And so having uh, an approach that creates more positive ways of labeling could itself make a major contribution to overcoming disparities. In the UK, we're seeing something quite interesting happening where there's actually a move to be able to create a much more solid foundation and structure to support people from transgender communities uh, or you know anyone who's, who's marginalized for, for whatever set of reasons. Um, and there's a drive to fund this and there's a drive to have um, hubs within communities as well, where people who who do you know relate to certain ways of life and living and and so on can actually subscribe to that and become part of it and have the specialized care and support that they need. And I think it's becoming more and more recognized that there that, that we can't paint everybody with the same brush and we can't use the same scores on everybody. So I think we're seeing some really positive change happening here. I mean we we've. Kind of dealt with the with the ethnic minority problem for sure. I mean, with COVID, we realized that we we need to do a lot more research on what we call BAME communities here. So that's Black, Asian, and ethnic minorities. Um, and I think there's a lot more investment from the government as well to fund that research because it all goes down to funding at the end of the day. You know, that there has to be a pot of money available for mm -hmm. these kind of projects. And that's happening increasingly. But what I can also say that we don't have as much data as you do in America about African-American communities, Latino communities, and so on as well. 
So we also look to you and we also access, we look to access that data from America to be able to inform ourselves over here, but obviously because there's funding to do that in America. So I think it's it's going to be this, this cross-pollination that's going to increasingly help people get to that point because we're such a global world now. Um, the other thing that I'll just add is that, uh, you know, at Opeka, we are creating success-focused models rather than risk, risk-focused models um, and uh, bringing that data together from the community health um, agencies, the community-based agencies uh, with the hospital information, with the primary care information, you know, these success-focused models are able to identify, you know, how to reduce risk. So when somebody would have been labeled as high risk, but they were able to uh, improve in their their quality of uh, health uh, because they received the support, identifying what supports worked in helping those people achieve the success that they achieved. And if we focus on models that that look at that rather than focusing on people who fail and and how they fail and why they fail if we could focus our models on people who don't fail and why they don't fail and how they don't fail then we have a lot more information to apply toward the problem because we can identify what kinds of services and supports are working for whom and that's really the approach that we take because we can unify information across the different community providers as well as the hospitals and create that 360 view, we can begin to look at um, people's journeys through the care system while um, capitalizing on the fact that people are achieving success and uh, seeing how we can achieve that more often. Mm -hmm. I think that's great because you're all talking about it takes a village, but then these villages come together and then power strengthening larger communities, which will strengthen states, which will strengthen countries, which will strengthen our planet. So talk about hope uh, woven into a great discussion. Um, thank you all. And this again, segues right into that, you know, we're, we're, we're very used to, what was the number of the, how many, is it 6.5 billion people you have a cell phone? Was yep. that the number? Yeah. <laughs> Devices. Some people might have multiple phones. That just, you know, that was boggling, mind-boggling. So how does the non-traditional self-sufficiency tools, such as phone apps, other technologies, assist and support community health workers? Um, can't wait to hear. This is going to be interesting, being one of the more seasoned people. Yeah, I mentioned um, earlier, Culture Care Collective has our digital health platform that um, essentially is a phone app, a tablet app that we can, you know, increase the interoperability and connectivity among multidisciplinary teams once community health workers are added onto those teams. Um, but we also use it to optimize the communication and um, and coordination between clients, chronically ill clients and community health workers. So essentially having this digital platform increases engagements, increases engagement rates at, you know, some of the hospitals that we know have been struggling with engagement in such, you know, uh, public health or public serving programs that are really trying to address the social determinants of health. Um, a lot of people, again, it's a busy world. COVID has changed everything. We're constantly on the go. So technology to kind of help um facilitate that engagement is really important in our communities and knowing that we've kind of in the you know post-pandemic era have been forced to adopt telehealth and seeing those you know rises like a 38-fold increase in telehealth utilization from pre-pandemic to now 
uh, we've kind of been forced into the area that we have to reckon with the gaps in our technology, in our EMRs, in our, you know, these non-traditional tools like the phones, um, the patient-facing apps. So really optimizing um, a lot of the technology that we use in our different companies and a lot of the innovations that we're creating um, is going to be key in in helping those community health workers do their jobs with their operations, but then also helping clients and health systems overall. I'm, I'm going to talk about an example that we have here. So like I was saying earlier, I mean, community care is part and parcel in the very fabric of the healthcare provision that we have in the UK. So when you have a baby, you've got these um, healthcare workers, health workers, they're called to come over to your home and they come and visit you in your home. And especially if you're a first time parent mom, then, you know, you get a lot of support. And when, when she comes in, when the midwife comes in, she has a kit full of gadgets, lots and lots of gadgets. And she comes, she, she measures you and she takes your, your, your stats and the same for the baby. And oftentimes if there's a blood test that needs to be done or if there's any kind of scan that needs to be done, she doesn't have the equipment with her, and which means you wait for the next, I don't know, next next visit whenever that happens and the bloods to go to the lab. And there's, there's this huge gap of time that goes by and there's a huge workload and things get lost, but you know, they fall between the cracks and so on. What we're saying is that if you can use a device where you can do the the tests at point of need, not point of care, but point of need where you are at that, that point in time, you have all of this information available to you and you're empowered to actually take action at that point, exactly where you are and when that person needs it. That's when we're gonna see that the real impact of care. So that that's really the objective of what we're trying to achieve here which is to have a spirometer, Kate, or a peak flow meter on your device. And the way we've, we've developed the application is that most of these tests are very, very effort dependent, which is why you have to go into a clinic, a clinic most of the time. You have to be coached. You have to be encouraged to do the test because it is a lung test, lung function test. But what we've tried to do is tune the interface to a point where you don't need the same level of effort. It's actually so much simpler and coming back to that point about co-development with the patient, co-development with the person that you're serving to create something that people can use, that's really the ethos of what we've done with Youpnews. We co-develop the, the, the application, the interface, the interaction, and the data that's received from that interaction so that it's customized so that the patient can do something with it and also the practitioner can do something with it. And that's how we want to have that handshake happening between technology and the user so it becomes extremely human-centered irrespective of where they are or who's using it and action can be taken at that moment rather than try to um, try to delay things later on when it's not that relevant i'm curious ashia if there are other chronic diseases uh on your roadmap uh beyond lung disease is this the, the first stop yes absolutely um we, we're trying to explore as much as we possibly can about what can be done with just the sensors on the device i mean i wish i could tell you more i'm really excited to show you more when when you know things become available but absolutely yes we want to make these devices digital laboratories that everybody has in their pockets and can use as and when they need them i i really love to hear um final thoughts with regards to the takeaways is is there something that you see that is um 
it, it, it's been a great accomplishment. And there are there other things that are still like number one on the to-do list. Um, so the final thoughts are all up to you. I, I would just like to know what our call to action is. I don't know, uh, Dr. Snowden, if from anything you heard today, if you have any ideas of a call to action, what can people do next? What can we do next? What is the next step? So let me let me respond. That's an excellent question. Let me respond in this way. Um, it's going to vary depending on where you are. So I just want to come back to the point I made earlier about how fragmented and diverse the U.S. healthcare system really is. And so what's available and what needs to be done and exactly how is going to depend. And we're going to have to do the good things over and over. So it, the solutions will be, will be local depending on the health market and health plans and the state regulations and local regulations and so on. We don't have a national health service. Um, but, I, but it's possible, and I think that's just a challenge and in some ways an exciting challenge and perhaps a challenge that will, that will lead to um, even better results because it implies that we really need to adapt um, these wonderful developments um, to make them work under local condition. Great, uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I agree, I, I second that. I mean, you know, we aspire probably to have a national health system um, like you do. Uh, in the United or in in England, are you in England? Is that where you're at? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, in England. Um, yeah, um, but you know, until then, but it sounds like you know, even then, that doesn't solve all the problems, right? There's still that that solves the access problem um, to some degree, but then there's still stigma. There's still um, you know, knowledge of when to seek care, um, how to seek care. Um, so navigating the health system. So there still continues to be challenges. And so while we work toward uh, more access to care from a coverage perspective, that sounds like there's certainly a number of things that we can do um, in preparation uh, to reduce those other barriers. Um, and you know, along the lines of defragmenting the system from a data perspective, you know, which is obviously where, what we're trying to do over here at Opeka is unify um, these multidiscipline teams so that we can collaborate off the same health care plan, or excuse me, health, um, health plan, excuse me, care plan, not health care plan, the same care plan for people with complex needs. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm curious if, if others have thoughts of what is our, what is our call to action? How do we, you know, I think this is part of it. I think having the discussion and, and educating people on how important community-based um, agencies and community-based workers are to the healthcare system. I mean, I think even Ashia, you mentioned it, how important it is that home health, the nurses coming to the home after a baby's born, like those community-based workers are just so important and they're part of your system. They should be part of our system. How do we, how do we, what do we do next? What's our call to action? I think just just by being, you know, on my side of the pond, <laughs> if if anything, yeah, I always say the Americans are the most optimistic people we've ever met, and you know, I mean, not we've ever, we've ever experienced, and there's this incredible optimism about the future and openness to technologies and doing things better. I mean, we've seen that now with the present administration. Um, so I think that heck, anything's possible. 
And, you know, everyone's on, I believe, on the right. Uh, we've all had to be pushed into the future thanks to the pandemic across the globe. And it set this the, the ball in motion. And I think it's just a question of time. So it's all it's a very exciting time to be alive. I think in terms of, you know, sustaining the workforce, I know that as a nurse, I'm very tired of the pandemic. <laughs> I know community health workers are even more tired because they are literally at the front lines, like distributing the tests, making sure people get screened. Uh, you know, we're collectively as a workforce very, very exhausted. Um, so finding ways to support, you know, our mental health, collaboration, connectivity among all of the members of the multidisciplinary team. But then also from a more practical standpoint, it's going to be rooted in sustainable financing models mm -hmm. to be able to do that, support our mental health, but then also support the integration of community health workers, the integration of community-based organizations, community clinical linkages, but then also the companies that assist in doing that, which is all of us, truly. Um, so making sure that we are optimizing our ability to make those linkages, to improve that socially supportive care and, um, you know, empower community health workers, community health centers, community-based organizations to continue to do that work because it is hard work and, you know, the pandemic took a lot out of all of us, I'll say. Okay, so I took some notes. I summarized it, I think, from all of us, if maybe I got it right. Uh, so our call to action is um, continue to support the um, expansion of the Affordable Care Act and coverage universally in the United States. Be open to technology. It is the future. Um, and technology has a role and must play a role in our healthcare. Think about how we can alone change our language to be more positive um, on our day-to-day -day basis. We can all start that today um, using more positive language and less stigmatizing language. And then um, learn about and communicate by word of mouth the importance of community-based health workers and community-based centers in our care system, because I think it's something that's undervalued um, in either there's just not enough education about how important that is to our to our fragmented system. So those are my calls to action that I've heard and, and maybe let me know if I've missed anything. I know that I, I can speak for the the attendees who are listening um, where we thank you for taking time out and developing the, the 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 amazing technologies to support the work that Dr. Snowden has has uh, put into to data form. And if we all work together in a collaborative way um, and and use helpful language and uh, and are committed for change, I think it'll happen. I know it will happen. Uh, so thank you all for taking time. Um, out and being a part of this series. We look forward to hearing more of the amazing work. So um, stay tuned. It's not an ending. It's certainly a beginning. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.